Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the new school year begins this week, but many parents and guardians are still worried about COVID-19. Has the government done enough? Education Minister Stephen Lecce joins us to talk about that. What do we need to know about the new travel rules that come into effect today? Frederick Dimash, the director of the Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism Management at Ryerson University, will talk to us about that. And after months of talks, Hamilton's proposed LRT agreement goes before council tomorrow. What needs to happen for them to make a united decision? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. First day of school for many boards, not all. Uh, some are still holding off for another couple of days. I'll be uh, later toward the week, about Thursday or Friday, I have this for some of the boards to actually get back. But by and large, uh, the day after Labor Day is, is the day that we're back in that mindset of getting back to school. But not without a great deal of apprehension uh, because of the closure that we had last year. We're still in a pandemic. Uh, there are still concerns and legitimate concerns about the numbers. And uh, the Ministry of Education has said uh, that uh, that they've got things set up for this to, to be successful. Now, Stephen Lecce is the Minister of Education here in the province of Ontario. Uh, he will join us momentarily to uh, give us his perspective on what's going on and what the ministry has done uh, to get ready for the school closure. Look forward to that conversation. But we're also going to open the lines of up to get your thoughts on this. Do you feel it's safe for your kids to go back to school? Uh, given what's going on with the pandemic these days and given what environment is going to be present there. Uh, are you ready for back to school? Are your kids ready? Are they nervous? Are you nervous? Uh, and some concerns, I think, very legitimate concerns are still being raised. As we mentioned, uh, the minister has uh, said the teachers are, are going to be ready to get back into the classroom. One of the things that I'm hearing from an awful lot of parents, though, is, is a concern about vaccinations. Now, the ministry has said the teachers don't need to be vaccinated, but staff and students through grades 1 through 12 are going to have to wear masks. Even uh, everybody needs to be self-screened for COVID-19 symptoms daily. But reaction from a lot of parents is pretty mixed on this. I'd really like it if the staff could be all vaccinated. We have at the hospitals, if we have not been vaccinated, we have to go in every two days. So twice a week seems fair. So on and on it goes. And uh, I, I know an awful lot of parents that have just said, look, I just I'm not comfortable with this. Uh, and they've opted for the again, the, the virtual learning situation. Uh, although you have to juxtapose that with the, a number of experts are telling us about uh, mental health with students. And yes, even kids in the, uh, you, the junior grades are adversely affected by not being with their, their, their peers, their friends, their relatives. Uh, at school is one thing, but I mean, to be in a, a, an environment where you're staring at a, at a computer screen uh, for your learning environment can be problematic. It can be stressful. Uh, and I think there's a general consensus that being in the classroom is the best situation for students. But have they done enough? And uh, do you do you feel basically that your kids are going to be safe in the school environment and the vaccination issue although i know a lot of politicians kind of want to shy away from this for a whole lot of reasons uh is still going to be front and center in this discussion in this debate uh you know we've talked about mandatory vaccinations the province of ontario is moving uh towards a, a proof of vaccination and, and i know there's some controversy about that although as you've heard on this program i totally support that i think it's the right way to go uh we've uh, done national polling on this over the last couple of weeks and uh 75 to 85 percent depending on which poll you're looking at uh, 75 to 85 percent of the Canadian population support proof of vaccination. Uh, there are a very vocal but minor group of people, smaller group of people that are opposed to this and uh, some apprehensive, some are just plain anti-vaxxers and we've seen their reactions. Uh, and maybe that's 
part of the reason why some politicians seem to shy away from that. But that was one of the main areas about uh, you know, parents are saying, well, am I going to let my child go back to school in that environment, uh, notwithstanding the fact that the, the person who's in, teaching that particular class may or may not be vaccinated. Uh, mask wearing, good idea. Uh, but there are other things that need to be done as well. And take your mind back just a couple of minutes to, to what happened before uh, the summer break happened. And, of course, there was a school closure. And the debate then was, as it is now, is the school the safest place for kids, especially children under 12 who aren't vaccinated? They can't be vaccinated, not yet anyway. And uh, the vaccination rate for that other group, the other uh, demographic group from about age 12 to about 18 or 19, uh, is not anywhere near as high as, as the, the medical experts would like to see it which raises the question again, is this going to be a problem? Are we exposing kids back to school? And um, they're in the same predicament that I guess a lot of small business people are in these days too. Uh, you know, they're, they're opening, although with restrictions, we get that. You know, mask wearing is still impacted, and there are, there are restrictions about the number of people that can be in a, in a particular store. Uh, but, uh, you know, as the numbers increase, uh, you know, the premier has already said that uh, if he's has to, he, he would have to force another lockdown. I don't want to be a total lockdown necessarily, but that's one discussion. But the other element is if the numbers continue to increase here in Ontario, what about the school year? I mean, do we send our kids back to school only to find out that maybe a week, three weeks, four weeks from now, uh, we have to shut them down and send them home again? I, I don't know. I'm hoping that doesn't happen. I don't know there's any parent that wants it to happen, but it's a question that a lot of folks have. Well, to answer those concerns, we are pleased to welcome back to the program on this first day of school for an awful lot of students. Uh, Ontario's Education Minister Stephen Lecce joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Mr. Minister, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Good morning. Let me first of all ask you about, let's, let's talk about the environment in which the kids are going to be in, and I mean the physical environment. Uh, there are a lot of concerns about ventilation systems, about uh, uh, the, the element of what's actually in the, the, the bricks and mortar of these schools. Uh, I know you mentioned over the summer, Minister, that, uh, that you and your, uh, your ministry have been working diligently uh, to try to address those concerns. Where are we today? Well, Bill, first off, I just want to say I'm very pleased. I think we're all grateful to see our kids go back to school. It is so important for the mental and physical health, and I've been a strong advocate for getting these kids back, so it's good to see it. There's a strong consensus. Everyone is on side. Get the kids in school. We have done so with major ventilation improvements. To answer your question, year over year, we've seen a massive improvement in the ventilation of our, of our schools that have mechanical ventilation, half a billion dollars literally injected in a year, to improve the physical spaces and the ventilation within our schools. In addition, for the schools without mechanical ventilation, which builds probably in around 25-30% of our schools, those have now HEPA units, those standalone air ventilation devices in every single learning space without exception, from a lab to a gym, you know, to a, to a you know, your traditional classroom. Everyone has a HEPA unit, which follows the strict advice of the Ontario Science Table and the pediatric hospitals who said, yes, build up your HVAC systems, and in the interim, deploy HEPA units. There's now 70,000 in classrooms this September, nearly 2,000 in the Hamilton-Wentworth school boards supporting safer schools. We've also made sure that our systems are running two hours before and two hours longer. We've increased fresh air intake. We've um, assessed every single uh, HVAC system. We've improved the filtration using MRF 13, which is the highest filter recommended by public health. And then, of course, look, to be quite frankly, Bill, what's the big game changer between last September and this September? It's vaccines. I mean, yep. 
the advent of modern science within the last year has enabled not just adults at over 80% with a double dose, which is an incredible rate, in an industri- one of the highest rates in a, in, in a modern Western democracy. It's also the kids 12 plus are now 75% plus of a single dose, 60% plus or double dose. We didn't have that a year ago. So just when you look year over year, just the evolution of the investment, the science, the vaccine, there's a lot of things working in our favor. The Delta still means we've got to be cautious. That's why our plan is designed to still minimize indirect, direct contact, but giving these kids a bit more normalcy, you know, like extracurriculars and clubs, things that I think that they could really enjoy and embrace, but doing it safely with the protocols in place. Uh, the HEPA filters are a very effective tool. I've talked to a number of experts uh, that know more about this than, than I ever will. But uh, they, And it's not just a, well, it's, it's a, a less expensive alternative. I mean, you can't rebuild those old buildings. You, you, you have what you have there. Uh, but they, they feel very confident. I, I know that your, your ministry got a thumbs up from those experts that that's going to be an effective tool. Uh, but you mentioned the vaccinations, Minister, and let's talk a little bit about that uh, because there was a, a lot of pushback when you said that, well, uh, it's not going to be mandatory for teachers to be vaccinated. And a lot of parents contacted me, and I'm sure they contacted your ministry as well, to said, well, wait a second. If I'm going to send my son or daughter back to school, I want to know that, uh, you know, at least the teacher, if it's going to be in the junior grades, at least the teacher and the staff in that school are going to be vaccinated. Uh, you know, just, I mean, I was at the Ticat game yesterday. I mean, you know, nobody was there unless they were double vaxxed. And that gave me a level of comfort and everybody else there to say, you know, okay, that's mitigating the problem here. Have you done everything possible or, or mandatory vaccinations probably in, been a better move to try to ensure that the people were a lot more comfortable with that environment? Look, the, the same policy for schools is in place for hospitals and long-term care. Uh, no different, the same requirements for a doctor or a nurse working with vulnerable people. The expectation is consistent. You either need to be double vaxxed, which is the clear preference of the government and myself as a minister, or subjected to weekly rapid antigen testing at least twice a week, starting at twice a week. That number can change over time. That ensures for parents out there, and I hear you, Bill. I mean, I, 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 I've heard some of those concerns, too, you know, from folks who just want to make sure these schools are as safe as humanly possible. By ensuring and requiring rapid antigen testing twice a week, we minimize risk. And, of course, as you know, some school boards have opted to go further than our policy of testing or vaccine, mandating vaccines, which they can as the employer. But as the government, the basic standard we're setting is you either, you got to pick a lane, you're double vaxxed, or you're getting tested from now until the end. And that's going to help reduce risk. It's going to help reduce the spread among staff and ultimately just ensure we don't bring cases into school. It's also why we have a very strict screening program still in place for the staff. Active screening, we've stepped it up. We have an individual at the front of the school asking those basic questions. Do you live with anyone with a symptom? You know, Do you have any symptoms, et cetera? That applies to our staff. In fact, there's a very rigorous process of screening for staff before they can enter a school. So we have put in place those protections uh, really to reduce the amount of any cases that could come from the school. And look, we're, you know, we're obviously going to continue listening to the advice of the chief, uh, Dr. Moore, the chief medical officer of mm-hmm. health, um, on the way forward. Because the Delta, you know, I think we all know there's some variables there not, none of us can control. So we have to be nimble as policymakers. We've got to be ready to act. I think the plan in place, which has been endorsed by the chief medical officer of health, uh, will keep schools as safe as possible. And we'll obviously continue to step it up as required. 
Hey, and I know that uh, just kind of dovetailing on the announcement that the premier made last week about proof of vaccination, I know that's that's being developed and that's going to roll out in the next couple of weeks, as as uh, you announced last week. Uh, but it does, I guess, uh, kind of spark the debate once again about this, about you know who's going to be vaccinated and who's not. And uh, I, I I don't know whether or not there's even a consideration of a proof of vaccination into the school environment. But uh, I talked to one trustee from one of the boards a couple of weeks ago that suggested maybe the alternative here and the middle ground is look at if you're vaccinated, you can teach in front of the classroom. If a teacher chooses not to be vaccinated, perhaps they're a candidate for, for you know, the, the virtual learning instead where they're not uh, close to in situations like that. Is that, is that sure. a policy that your ministry considered? Well, it's a policy school boards can consider adopting. I mean, obviously, you know, that, that, you know, that, that can be sensible if the, if the school board trustees decide, look, in our community it could be a hot spot or in general, we don't want it to permit anyone in working without a double vaccine, the employer, the school board can decide it. But at the very least, the minimum standard province-wide we are setting is the is that sort of choice between double vax, which is the clear preference of government, or the mandatory uh, 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 testing requirements on a weekly basis, twice a week, and that number can be stepped up if the CMOH, if Dr. Moore and others require it. So definitely employers, the school board can adopt it. And as you know, many uh, big boards in Ontario are looking at potentially strengthening that requirement on a local basis in discussions with their medical officers of health. So they can certainly do that. And to be fair, they are. A, a quick question. I know it's a busy day for you, Minister. I really appreciate you being with us here. Uh, let's let's talk about, and I, I hope this never happens, but a worst-case scenario. Uh, we know the numbers are on the increase in Ontario with the Delta variant, and that, that's troubling to all of us in all sectors, not just in the environment uh, element of this. Uh, and I know that you're talking to Dr. Moore, the chief medical officer, probably on a daily basis, I would think, as you look at some of these numbers. Uh, is there a red line that if we cross it, you're going to have to consider partial closures like we had to do late last year? I mean, the numbers in, in many instances, as you know, are actually higher than they were back when the, the, your, your government made the decision to shut things down a few months ago. Uh, is that a concern? And, and is, do you have a number in mind with Dr. Moore that if we reach that, that we're going to have to consider Plan B? Well, the, the chief medical officer was asked about the, the potential for, for province-wide school closures. His position was uh, that we should very much be able to avoid that. He thought that the fact that last Spring compared to this fall, the vaccination rates are now over 82 percent. Uh, double vac, you know, an incredible rate for Ontario, one of the highest vaccine jurisdictions in the world. His belief is that alone is going to, or that that in part will help mitigate the need for closure. In addition, the ventilation improvements we did them last year, to be fair, but we really stepped them up this year. Uh, and obviously, the fact that we now have many high school kids, in fact, over 75% with a dose. I mean, these are game-changing differences that, like, back in the spring, kids that age weren't even eligible for the vaccine. I and mean, it's hard to think about well, five, six months in modern science and just the evolution of, of vaccines, how that can help us. That's not the only thing. And the chief medical officer of health, to be fair, said we've got to look beyond just the case number when it comes to COVID. We've got to look at hospitalization, ICU. Uh, these types of metrics, not just the case rate. So we're going to follow his advice in the context of any potential uh, changes. But our intention, and his as well, publicly stated, is we got to keep the schools open, do everything humanly possible. Kids have borne a big part of the pandemic, the price of this pandemic. They've shouldered it. They've been very, you know, um, uh, you know, they've been they've worked very hard through an impossible. Uh, the last couple of years. So I think we owe it to them to do what we can to keep the schools open, and we are. And uh, obviously, part of this is making sure that the community around the school remains safe. So we built up capacity, testing, 
We've launched, you know, low barrier testing for students, make it easier, take home tests. We've reduced the wait times for tests. We don't want parents waiting six days to get a result. We're really pushing this Ministry of Health to get those within uh, 48 hours with the majority within 24 hours. You know, we've maintained the cleaning in our schools. And obviously, the public health nurses play a role. We've doubled them to help out with our uh, contact tracing and to support our schools. So I feel we've done everything possible. I know this is a collective enterprise. I'm proud of the staff within our schools who are working hard, the parents for their incredible patients, and our kids who, honestly, I've never seen more children be more excited to go to school. It's a good thing. And now our obligation as a society and the government is to keep them there. Absolutely. Ontario Education Minister Stephen Lecce, it's day one minister, of course, of what's going to be a long process, and uh, we are cautiously optimistic, I guess, that things are going to work out this time. Uh, Thanks so much for this today. We'll stay in touch as this rolls on. Thank you so much, Bill. Have a good day. Take care. We'll uh, talk about what's going on here and and, and the the impact it's going to have. And and this is not a one-day situation because we're going to be looking at some of the numbers, and and the minister's quite right, uh, as he mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, that uh, in in his mind, and I think in the minds of just about everybody in Ontario, most people anyway, uh, the best possible situation here is for the kids to be back in the classroom. We had a discussion last week in the program with the head of infectious diseases of McMaster Children's Hospital in Hamilton, uh, Dr. Jeff Pernica, who was uh, quite avid about that. He said, look, at health and wellness benefits are paramount even with younger kids in the younger grades, and that return to school is a good thing. It's not just the academics, although obviously the academics are extremely important. It's, it's everything. It's, you know, um, social and emotional development, it's physical health from getting to school and being at school. It's the mental health part of it. It's really everything. Well, here's hoping that, uh, that this is going to be the beginning of a full school year. I talked to a few parents at the uh, the football game yesterday who were apprehensive about that and simply saying, you know, I, the worst thing that could happen here is if we had to pull them out again in another month or two because these numbers are, are on the increase. And they are on the increase. We'll get an update later on the program uh, about the Ontario numbers uh, heading into uh, this first week of school. Uh, and, and Minister Lecce's point is well taken. It's not just the number of new cases because some of these new cases are – people that may in fact not even be hospitalized because of the vaccine so that's mitigated the impact of uh, of the delta variant and that's a good thing uh but it's the number of hospitalizations and the number of icu admissions and sadly in many parts of the province those numbers are on the increase too we're not in a crisis situation yet uh, but we are getting warning signs from a number of different medical experts that uh, we, we, you know, we have to be very cognizant of that. And uh, that could have an impact on what's going on, especially in the education system, too. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is also a banner day for uh, international travel. Uh, different restrictions. Uh, some would suggest uh, easing of restrictions uh, for some international travel. Uh, fully vaccinated foreign nationals have now joined the ranks of travelers who are once again welcome on Canadian soil. But uh, Canada Border Services Agency Vice President Denis Vanette uh, says there are other criteria besides having a 14-day pass since the traveler's last dose of the Health Canada-approved vaccines. You have to arrive uh, with a pre-arrival uh, COVID molecular test has to be taken within a 72-hour window of arriving in Canada. You have to be asymptomatic. And then finally, you have to submit your information through ArriveCan, either on the web or on uh, the application that can be downloaded. A number of other things that we're going to get into in just a couple of minutes as well. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Frederick Dimash, who is the director of the Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism Management at Ryerson University. Uh, Mr. Dimash, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Let me ask you... 
one of the concerns that we've always had about international travel with rising numbers of the pandemic, and especially with the Delta variant, is we're letting our guard down. Uh, some are suggesting that maybe it's too soon seeing the rising numbers to actually start to ease some of these restrictions. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I, personally, I don't think it's too soon, in fact, because we are taking precaution. We are managing the risk. As yeah, you just heard a minute ago from your, from your guest, um, you know, people have to be fully vaccinated. They have to show, in addition to the full vaccination, a negative PCR test result. So we are managing the situation as good as we can be. And, and uh, when we look at the situation in Europe, um, we look at Europe has been reopening its borders already in June. Um, you look at France specifically, where the infection rate have been going down since they have that uh, sanitary pass or vaccine pass, as you may want to call it. Uh, also, there was interestingly a study in, in the UK just recently that was published in a newspaper indicating that there were more people infected from traveling within England than from people coming back from vacationing abroad. So, again, I think people in the travel industry are paying a lot of attention to the processes. The government is paying a lot of attention, you know, with the ArriveCan app and, and controlling who is coming in and, and how safe they are. So, personally, I'm not concerned with that. You used a key word there, a verb that uh, I think is very germane to the conversation, and that's manage. Because uh, as you know, even last year when, when the, the numbers started to go off the charts here, the number of new cases, and we were concerned about that, uh, there were advocates uh, that, that simply said, well, shut everything down, don't let anybody into the country. And I, I, that was a rather naive approach to think that we could control it that way. Uh, but to manage it and, and to put certain restrictions and parameters in there seems to be a far more practical approach. Absolutely. This is all about risk management. The risk zero does not exist. We have to live with the risk, but we have to manage it. And, and we do it at home. We do it in the stores. We do it in restaurants. We do it in airports. We do it in airlines. We do it with international travel now. So uh, it, it's all, as you say, about managing the risk because behind there are so many issues that are at stake as well. You know, it, it's about economic development. It's about the jobs of so many people who work in hospitality and tourism. It's about the airlines and the airports. It's, it's, it's a lot at stake, and, and all those considerations have to be considered. There are a number of different vaccines that are in play around the globe these days, and, and I know that's one of the elements of, of these regulations that uh, they're going to play uh, today. And, and basically it has to be a, a, a vaccine, I guess, that's, that's acknowledged uh, and given a thumbs up by Health Canada. And, and I think we're all familiar with most of them now, Pfizer, BioNTech, uh, Moderna, AstraZeneca, uh, and, well, Johnson & Johnson is, is the brand name for that as well, maybe not as well known. But there are others in play, uh, Chinese vaccine, Russian vaccines that are used in different parts of the world, uh, which would prohibit some of that travel. Uh, is, is there a concern there that, that, that these restrictions and saying these are the only vaccines that we recognize right now uh, is going to be a problem for some of those other countries? Well, look, that's a question to ask uh, a doctor more, more than to me. But, but for sure, when you log in to the Arrive app, they are asking you what type of vaccine you've been taken. And in the app also, they ask you to upload um, the, the picture of your vaccination certificate, you know, for vaccine number one and vaccine number two, if you had one. So I, I think, again, you know, it, it's all about managing the, the risk. And uh, sooner or later, maybe we'll know more about the Russian vaccine or the Chinese vaccine. And we'll be uh, allowing people coming from those countries with all vaccines to, to come in. But um, we, we probably need more data to, to allow this to happen. What's a uh 
What's the reaction to this been? As you mentioned, there are other countries that have been uh, ahead of us with this. France is one that comes to mind, but of course they've got the vaccine passports, the proof of vaccination. They were one of the first countries to actually uh, initiate and embrace that sort of a situation. Uh, and uh, is international travel up? We we're certainly, I, I would think, not anywhere near where we were before the pandemic as far as the numbers are concerned. But do you see that people are becoming more comfortable with the international travel now? Yes, and, and that's the kind of news that will make people more comfortable. So I, I think there are some, some distinctions between continents, obviously. I, I find that the Europeans have been keen on traveling. Um, you know, if, if you were in Europe this summer, you would have seen people from all over Europe, you know, traveling across mm-hmm. uh, the, the continent, basically. Uh, in North America, it's been much more restrictive. Obviously, the Americans are closing the border still. Uh, the Canadians just reopened the border. So it really depends on, on, on the countries and the health situation in each of those different countries. But so th- there is not one model. I think all countries are, are trying to do something that makes sense for them, that makes sense for their economic interests, that makes sense for their health situation. And, um, you know, we'll see as we go along, as you know, this crisis, you know, every week, every month, there's some news and, and um, we keep being surprised one way or the other. Talk to us about uh, about your perspective on the quarantine uh, protocol here. I, I know when the Canadian government rolled this out some months ago now, a lot of negativity, a lot of pushback about this. Uh, first of all, about who is actually going to be quarantined, uh, but, you know, the cost of the hotels and, and all this sort of stuff. They, they backed off on this, uh, and, and they've pretty much eased, I would think, uh, the, the, the protocol for, vac- or for the, the quarantine. Are you, are you comfortable with what's come going forward? Well, you know, remember that the quarantine was imposed for anybody coming inside Canada at one point, you know, the Canadians or permanent residents traveling. And then there was this imposition that this quarantine had to be in a hotel at the cost of the traveler. And that caused a lot of reaction, obviously. Mm-hmm. I think the, the intent of that decision was more to prevent traveling than to actually control, you know, people in quarantine and to do this kind of thing. And And the effect was... Um, effective, uh, actually, um, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, the number of people who traveled abroad dramatically dropped as soon as there was this uh, quarantine announcement about, you know, hotel stays. Um, but I, I believe it was not, not fair for, for, for travelers. Uh, I, I think people who need to quarantine, you know, can arrange to quarantine at home, as the Canadians have done uh, already last year be, before that decision. Um, and, and now, once again, once we have people who are fully vaccinated, and in addition, they have taken a PCR test that is negative, Uh, there is really no reason to quarantine people for for, uh, 14 days or nine days. And I know that, uh, that I think that seems to be the consensus uh, with some of the policies that are put in place here. Uh, we know, for instance, uh, let's talk about unvaccinated children, and especially children under 12, of course, because there is no vaccine uh, for them as of yet. So if they're traveling, uh, your, your point's well taken. I mean, the official, uh, I guess, policy here uh, says that those children under 12 that are not vaccinated, as long as they're traveling with vaccinated parents, they're exempt from quarantine, except they aren't really because they, they're not allowed to go to daycares or school for 14 days after their arrival here. So it's 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 a, a form of quarantine, I guess, to ensure that, that there's not going to be any exposure there. Exactly. I, I wouldn't call it a form of quarantine, but, you know, that would be similar to um, what you find, you know, with the vaccine passport that you're talking about in Europe, for example. You know, if you don't have that vaccine passport, you cannot go to a restaurant. You cannot go to a movie yeah. theater or to a museum anymore. So there, there are some restrictions on what you can do.
Uh, and that, and that's going to come into play here in Ontario, and it's going to be interesting to see how that impacts. But you, I, the, the point you made at the beginning of our conversation I find interesting because we've actually seen numbers to substantiate that, that, uh, you know, those who feel that travel is dangerous these days, it's travel within the province and within the country uh, that seem to be of the major concern as opposed to international travel. Uh, is it because some other countries are being more proactive? You mentioned France, Israel is another one that comes to mind, uh, that have, have done what they can and put these restrictions that we're following now in place sometimes time ago and the, uh, I, I guess the reaction to that is that they've seen positive results and uh, easing that 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 comfort level with Canadians and uh, we'll talk about the United States in a second but it seems as if the international community now is starting to feel a lot more comfortable since vaccinations have come in absolutely you're talking about countries where the vaccination rate is above 80 percent you know whether mm-hmm. it's Israel France or Canada now we we are in that zone where I think the government can feel a lot more comfortable because of that high vaccination rate. But um, there is still some uncertainty because 20% of us are not vaccinated. And, and that's the risk for, for everyone because they continue to perpetuate the, the, the virus. Uh, the unvaccinated, there are still, by the way, some, some people who would still qualify for entry into Canada who may be unvaccinated. Uh, those speak Canadian citizens, permanent residents who may outside or uh, registered persons uh, under the Indian Act, uh, those situations. Uh, how do we deal with them in this circumstance? I mean, we, we, don't want, we don't want the virus to spread, certainly, and we're concerned about the numbers in the Delta variant already. Uh, is allowing unvaccinated people in, regardless of their nationality, a, a concern? I think it is, a, it is a concern for sure. You know, we wish everybody was vaccinated. I mean, that's the optimal goal, right? You know, we want everybody to be vaccinated. But if you're not vaccinated for whatever reason, and there are some good reasons for that, well, then, you know, there may be some other measures that we can take, you know, such as the quarantine, or such as, you know, restricting people from attending a school, for example, as you said earlier, or children. So uh, that, that's, you know, it's it's really it's a difficult situation. You know, there is not one size fits all type of situation. Um, it's difficult for sure. But um, I, I would suggest that, that uh, um, you know, when you look at the situation overall, with the number of vaccinated people increasing, the number of in- of infection currently seeming to be stabilized. You know, there doesn't seem to be as much of an impact on the on, on the hospital capacity at the moment, um, and and that makes us become more optimistic. We should mention, by the way, that uh, there are still some restrictions. Uh, flights from Morocco and India are still suspended because of the high correct. numbers of, of new cases in those countries. And I just wanted our listeners to understand that, that that's still going to be in play. And, and what happens in those countries will dictate what uh, we're going to happen going forward. But it does lead me... Uh, to what we're going to do with the United States. And, and, you know, we're seeing some alarmingly high numbers of new cases and some hot spots, certainly, especially in the southern states uh, yeah. with, with what's going on these days. We have eased those restrictions, and I know in southern Ontario we're glad about that because there were Americans coming over here and, and tourism and, and hospitality are, are going to be a huge beneficiaries of, of that's going on. But when you see these rising numbers, just as we're concerned about having another school closure, we don't want to see that, or another lockdown, we don't want to see that either, uh, is there a concern also that if those numbers with our neighbors south of the border start to increase or continue to increase, including hospitalizations, that there may be a reconsideration about the Americans coming across the border? Of course it is. It is a concern. And, and But you have mentioned it. You know, it's specific to some states, especially in the southern states. You know, we know Mississippi, Florida, uh, um, Louisiana particularly have been uh, very highly mm-hmm. affected. Texas as well. Um, and, and, and those are not, you know, the, the, the 
primary customer who come across the border to, to Canada. But, but then again, it's all a matter of continuing to be very attentive about how we travel and how we as hosts, when we have visitors coming to us in our country, to, to, to manage their visit as well. You know, we have to impose physical distanciation. We have to impose masks in building, whether it's in, in a restaurant when people are not eating, when hotels, all this type of thing. That's the only way for us to add a level of, of um, uh, a confidence that we can live with. Well, and, and there are restrictions in place. I and mean, we, I, I, just as a quick anecdote, I mean, from a personal level, we just uh, had some good friends of ours, some American friends who visited us for the first, well, the first time in about two years they've been allowed to cross the border. Uh, but they talked to us about this. And, of course, they had to show a positive test uh, back home before they could even get on the plane. Or negative test, I mean, you know, that, yep. that everything yep. was fine. And then even in their return, when they go back to the States, uh, they still have to have another uh, negative test. I think it's no more than 72 hours before that. So, I mean, we're we're making sure that, uh, and, and again, to go to your point, about mitigating the impact and mitigating possible uh, problems here. And the, the, that protocol that's in place seems to be effective, at least so far. Absolutely. Uh, always a pleasure. We're, we're hoping, you know, we keep talking about a return to normal, but we just want to see the economy and we want to see international travel and so many other things uh, start to return to, to where they were before. And, uh, you know, despite the, the rising numbers. And uh, here's hoping that this is another step in that process. Uh, Mr. Dimash, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning. Thank you very much. It's an important discussion to have. Thank you. It absolutely is. We'll stay in touch as these numbers continue, and we'll see what other policies are going to be developed. Frederick Dimash, who is the director of the Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism Management at Ryerson University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about a very important issue that's coming to Hamilton City Council, uh, and it's going to have to do with light rail transit. Uh, this has been a debate that's been going on for the longest time, and I know our listeners in London on uh, CFPL London, of course, know that uh, their council has already decided on bus rapid transit and moving forward with the implementation, well, not the implementation, but the planning for it anyway at this stage. And good on them. They've made a, a decision, and they're sticking with it, and they're moving forward. Uh, Hamilton City Council is, is a different animal. Uh, I mean, if they had an up-and-down vote today, whether or not this was Tuesday, it'd probably be a split vote. Uh, and it's been like that with LRT for the longest time. But it, it looks like uh, we might be at this pivotal point right now. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger has said that this is going to be a defining moment. An approval of the Memorandum of Understanding would be, in his words, a final vote to move forward with LRT. This is an action item. This is, uh, this is uh, going to be a, an approval of the uh, approach in terms of uh, the city's responsibility for developing the LRT, the Metrolink's responsibility, and the Ministry of Transport. Well, if that happens going forward, and uh, a lot of us are under the impression that this is going to be the vote. They're going to have to make up their minds one way or another to uh, uh, the number of different colloquialisms we can use here, uh, none of which I can use on the radio, I suppose. But anyway, uh, we'll see what happens. Laura Babcock has been following this uh, since day one, really. She is the president of Power Group, uh, joining us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. First of all, luck, welcome back to Ontario uh, after your cross-country trek with you and the family over the summer. <laughs> Thank you. It's Great to be back in Ontario, I think. <laughs> One of the things that you mentioned, by the way, and when, when one of your tweets, which I thought was kind of intriguing and very germane to this conversation, is when you went out to the West Coast there, you actually had a chance to go and look at the uh, the rapid uh, transit system uh, that was actually supposed to be built in Hamilton, but the city council that day said, no thanks, so they built it out there. Yeah, the last time I spoke with you, Bill, it was about an op-ed that I'd done, The Spectator, about our trip, and about one of the things that was really eye-opening was being in the Vancouver transit system 
on a Saturday night where we were on the SkyTrain, a project that Hamilton uh, turned down many years ago, and we had this seamless ability to use the SkyTrain, which is an impressive kind of LRT above ground, uh, with the sea bus across the water. I mean, you can imagine Hamilton to Toronto kind of thing. It's an amazing system, and it really hurt to see how fall, far behind Hamilton had fallen because of our toxic political system and our toxic politics. And, and I think some of the people around the council chamber are responsible for that. And when you mentioned off the top that I'd been watching this from the beginning, in full disclosure, as I've told you before, I believe it was 2008, when the city contracted my firm Power Group to do a video of LRT. And that was with Hamilton Mayor Fred 1.0, when he was the mayor the first time. <laughs> and I remember shooting it with him on Sam Lawrence, you know, the, overlooking the city. Yeah. We had all this great hype. The city had already spent Metrolink's money, I think $160 million or something, on getting ready for this project. That was 2007 or 2008. And then you mentioned, you know, that the mayor is saying now that this is going to be some pivotal moment. In I think it was 2013, we actually popped corks on the O show uh, because we had been talking about LRT more than any other subject for years. And we finally had a billion dollars from the Kathleen Wynne government. And now look where we are years later. So what's that in total? 14 years. And here we have our mayor saying, oh, no, this is the moment for LRT. And I'm sure in the fall, I'm going to be on the O show talking about it again, because we have voted on this at council more than 50 times. And so the fact that this is not a fait accompli, the fact that we don't already have shovels in the ground and we're not so far ahead on this project is incredibly frustrating. My hope is that finally council can approach this with some fresh minds, some fresh ideas, sign the MOE that's, uh, the MOU that's been negotiated all summer with the province, and get on with this train so we can get on with all the other things that we need to leverage and build out. The mayor has also been on record, and as, as he was on our show just a, a week or so ago, we kept talking about this, and he characterized the vote tomorrow, if in fact there's going to be a vote, and we'll talk about that in a second, uh, as the last exit ramp. In other words, for all these people that are against LRT, it's time to shut up or put up now, uh, and there's no turning back. If this thing passes tomorrow, he says, that's it, we, we're moving forward, and there's nobody else going to throw any roadblocks in the way. Uh, as you mentioned, Laura, based on what's gone on here in the last 14 or 15 years, I, I'm skeptical. I, I, I still think that there's there's work to be done here, and these the, the vacillation that's gone on here I think is going to continue, and that, that worries me. Well, it does, and hearing from a person who has had the file for many, many of those 14 years, and in fact won an election last time on the binary choice, you either voted for Fred as mayor or you voted for Vince Agro, who was trying to stop the train. I mean, it was a binary election based on a single ballot issue. So if he can't get this thing through, then where, you know, what, is, what does that say about his leadership? But I don't think it's a time for a victory lap for Mayor Eisenberger or for council, even if they sign it, even if the shovels get in the ground. Because the amount of time and energy and money and loss of city staff over the years and loss of momentum and frustration for businesses has been tremendous. So if we get LRT going, they better come to the table with some fresh ideas on how to fully leverage it out, like they did in Vancouver around their SkyTrain, to fully make sure there's affordable housing around the route, that there's accessibility around the route, that they build infrastructure that is at least up to par with other cities in terms of how they've leveraged these kind of massive projects. So I'm hoping we don't just get, oh, you know, we just came, we finally signed it after 14 years of chaos. 
I hope we get, yeah, you know, this took too long. We need to do better going forward. For those who, there are some who have been adamantly opposed to this from, from day one, and uh, yeah, that that's fine. I mean, they've been consistent on that. I, I don't agree with them, but they've been consistent about that. There's others, as we mentioned, that are vacillated. They're, they're sitting on the fence. Uh, some of them voted a couple of years ago in favor of this simply because they said that, well, you know, the government of that day said it's, it's for LRT or for nothing. Well, that's basically what this federal government has said in this particular situation. But what worries me is is Aaron O'Toole's response to this, the the conservative leader, uh, that if they form government, the phrase he uses here is, we will honor the financial federal commitment to public transit in Hamilton. He does not mention LRT, which for those people that are sitting on the fence again, they, they may grasp that law and say, well, you know what, maybe we'll just hang on till after the election and see who's going to form government, because they, they, they're looking for ways to kick this thing down the road. I'm looking at patterns in the voting behavior of this council because, you know, we're, there's so much vacillation, Bill, that those of us who care about our city have to look for patterns to predict anything because there's no, there's no integrity in the positions of a lot of these councillors. And so uh, I see the NIMBY votes, like Chad Collins, who's now running, of course, federally in Stony Creek uh, to try to go, but he's opposing LRT. Like, we don't want it here. My residents don't want the train. They don't see the benefit. Then you've got the people who are outside of the main part of the city in terms of the core saying, this is not going to benefit my residents. We need bus service, so let's not bother with it, which is, again, this kind of myopia. It's what my people need, not what the broader city benefits from in terms of the economic spinoffs from this massive project. Um, you've got those councillors, and then you've got the councillors who have been sheerly playing politics on this thing. And I would put into that category Brad Clark, who, as you know, tried to win a mayor's race on the BRT option, uh, who also was for it when he sat at a panel that I hosted for the Urban Exchange saying it was a great investment in our needed infrastructure, and then was against it again. <laughs> So now he's saying, oh, he'll be fully making it happen if council goes for it. He's been all over. It's been very political for him. Uh, And then you've got Tom Jackson, who was one of the first people to use that language that the mayor just used uh, that you mentioned about the exit ramp. It was a number of years ago when I believe it was Tom Jackson who said, you know, something about an exit ramp. It was him or Terry Whitehead. And I remember thinking at the time, if they're using that language, this project is in trouble because they're up on the mountain saying that mountain residents aren't supportive because they're not going to be using it. Well, that's not the experience I get on my street in Tom Jackson's ward. I've got people up there who have been supportive of it for years who are never going to use it, but know it's good for business and for jobs and for keeping our kids here working in the city. It's necessary for us to even try to catch up with other cities that are competing for those kids and those jobs and that, and that, that kind of investment. So I'm hoping that the political counselors finish with this silly gamesmanship They'll do their little speeches probably to try to cover their butts for the next election in a year. But let's move on and let's test them on how innovative and how much they can leverage this big investment in our city. As soon as I, I shared your concern, by the way, as soon as I heard a number of councillors talking about exit ramps, uh, that tells me right off the bat that they don't support this at all, and, and they're looking for a way to bail out. Uh, and, and I know that the costing is going to be part of this, and, and part of this uh, MOU tomorrow is going to talk about the fact that, yeah, the city is going to be responsible uh, for some of the costs, and it's it's not an insubstantial number. It's $6.4 million each year. Uh, and it's mean 29 buses taken off the road, and, and some people have characterized that as a reduction in service, actually. Uh, 
but and an increase in ridership. I mean, it's all premised on on these sorts of things. So there are numbers here that to, that will validate, if I can use that word, uh, both sides of this discussion here. So I'm this is why I'm not hopeful that they're actually going to come to an agreement tomorrow on anything, either yay or nay. Well, you know, I, I there's two points on that. One is that. Of course, there's going to be costs. There's going to be pain for businesses along the route. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce has done a tremendous amount of pre-work that council should have been doing to lay up for businesses, to give them the opportunity to understand how to, you know, increase their online capacities and all these other mitigation factors. So I give Keenan and the Chamber credit for that. They have been making it better, but it's going to be painful. There's no way around that. It happens every time there's a major infrastructure. But if you were going to have to rip up the roads to lay some of this new infrastructure, why not have a great train that encourages development and economic nodes all the way along, right? So there's going to be pain, but there's benefit to that pain. So uh, in terms of the numbers, yes, there's going to be annual operation costs, but there's also going to be revenues coming into the city. The fact is we're getting this huge once-in-a-generation investment in infrastructure and improvement to our city's transit and brand. And if the city council can't leverage that and can't approach this project as winners, should they even be around the table? I would rather see people around the table who are saying, you know what, LRT, past is the past, this is the future, now let's look at other cities, let's look at best practices, and let's see how much we can make this a win for the city. And that's how they should have been speaking about this all along, Bill, as you and I have discussed. This mealy mouth, exit ramp, nonsense language, this parochialism, this pandering to their bases so they can get perpetually reelected has hurt our city and made us fall behind. And it's a lack of leadership, and, and I put that at the mayor's seat because, as I said, he got elected on this project. It shouldn't even be a question that the votes are lined up for tomorrow. It's a no-brainer. You saw people like Esther Paul say, well, if that much money is going to be yanked off the table, then I have to go for it. I mean, this is the easiest sell possible, and it should have been sold a long time ago. When you look at some of the details on this, and we, we, we got some of the details that was leaked last week about some of the stuff in this memorandum uh, that's coming before council. I know when uh, Minister McKenna was making the announcement, the Federal Minister uh, of Infrastructure made the announcement a, a couple of months ago, I guess it was now, uh, she talked about affordable housing being a key part of this, and, and that was one of the things that they thought was going to sell this. Uh, now, as, as this comes forward to council, the, the premise here seems to be, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that later on. Well, as, as soon as governments say, well, we'll do that later on, it, yeah, right. Uh, it just that never happens. And I, I'm looking at this, Laura, and I'm thinking, you know, I wanted a document that people can say, well, it's pretty clear now that there's going to be a huge asset and this is going to be a, a big plus. But when they take that off the table, and there's still some debate now as to whether or not the infrastructure costs below the ground are going to be paid for by the city or by Metrolinx in situations like this, it gives these guys an, a, another reason to kick this thing down the road and, and, and wait until after September 20th election to see who's going to be in Ottawa these days. And uh, so I, I think the mayor's being optimistic if he says this is the final vote on this. It's just not going to happen the way he, he thinks it is. Uh, a lot of councillors who voted in favor of this uh, a couple of years ago, as you recall, including some of the ones who were adamantly opposed to it, uh, said they had a gun to their head because if, if they voted no, there was going to be no money. I'm not so sure that they feel that pressure these days. Well, there's always going to be intermittent elections in this country, right? We know there's a provincial one coming up. We know that there's a municipal one coming up, and the federal one is at the whim of the city government. And so at any point, there could be a change in the, in the solid funding from any partner. But that's what it is to govern and to lead. There's always going to be factors that change. There's always going to be risks. When you have people who are committed to a vision, they say, you know what? 
as we have the information now, here's how we're going to make sure that we include affordable housing. Here's how we're going to become innovative, look at other places. We don't have to make this up. We're not asking for every counselor to sit around the table and be a transit engineer. But they have the expertise and staff. They have access to other places that have done it and leveraged it. And if they keep using the excuse that some winds may change, that is not leadership. That is someone who holds their finger in the air to see how the winds blow. And for too long, this city of Hamilton has lost things. We have literally been denied good things and a good economy because of that holding the finger in the air by many of these council members and saying, which way is the wind blowing today? What political fortunes are coming? What are my options? Instead of looking at what is good for the city. So we better here coming into the next election, here's how we're going to guarantee that there is affordable housing as part of this exciting opportunity, that there is accessibility built into this, that we build the infrastructure that this city needs for 2030, not for 15 years back. We need leadership, Bill. Well, and I can tell you from my time on council with all those years ago, I mean, there are some people on that council uh, that, that are uh, – influenced by a, a couple of phone calls that say look you vote for this i'm not you can't put a sign on my line and then and that 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 matters to them instead of saying well what's right for the city so I, i'm skeptical and and you know what i hope i'm proven wrong tomorrow but uh well let's just have to wait and see laura we'll, Bill, i'm an optimist for this city but i need council to step up well let's one way or t'other let's see just you know where the backbone is on this council uh, more to come on this as they say in the biz laura thanks again for the time today my pleasure, Bill. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.